0: Would you turn with me to the 22nd psalm that we just read earlier in the service? I suppose there is a type of grieving that takes place in the heart of a widow. Or the heart of a widower that is special, that sounds too nice of a word, unique, agonizing. I'm sure each widow feels it differently. I came across this this week because a friend shared it with me and a friend who is a widower or has been a widower has shared, yes, this hits so close to home. Widowhood is more than missing your spouse's presence. It is adjusting to an alternative life. It's growing around a permanent amputation. Widowhood is going to bed for a thousandth time and still the loneliness doesn't feel normal. Widowhood is walking around the same house you have lived in for years and no longer feeling like home. Widowhood is seeing all your dreams and plans you shared for as a couple of crumble around you. Widowhood is second-guessing everything you thought you knew about yourself, and it can be like a stranger in your own life. Widowhood is the irony of knowing that one person was here to be your support. If that one person was here, you would have the strength to grieve that one person, but they're not there. Widowhood is like missing the one person you could truly understand your heart to share. The funny joke, the embarrassing incident, the fear compelling you, or the frustration tempting you. No one else can bring that. Widowhood can lead to the struggling with identity. Who are you now without your spouse? Widowhood is feeling The restlessness because you lost your home, identity, partner, lover, friend, playmate, travel companion, co-parent, security, and life. And you're drifting. Widowhood is being alone in a crowd of people. Widowhood is frailty. It's strength. It's darkness. And yet it's rebirth. Widowhood is a life-changing life changing That is a a lament from a widow. Speaks to some that are grieving and have lost and experienced what felt to them and feels to them the devastation of their closest, the closest person in their life. Talking about lament this morning, we go to Psalm 22, a very interesting psalm full of phrases that seem somewhat mysterious and are quite rich. Psalm 22 is a lament. It is a lament of the gospel. And when I say a lament, I mean a loud cry, a howl. A passionate expression of grief. Usually with complaints or questions to God. Why are you doing this? How long is this going to happen? You know that in the Psalms there are 42 laments. That's a lot. And while our lives will sing songs of joy and praise, and they should... Surely we have these psalms, this many psalms, in order to teach us, to lead us, and to guide us to think, feel, and relate to God and to the experiences that we have in in a right way. In the songs of lament, like we're going to look at this morning, a song of grieving, a song of torment, these laments often have four characteristics. One is a turning to God, oh God. And secondly, an offering up of complaints to God. God, why are you doing this? God, how long? God, this is what's going on. Here's my frustrations. And then a pleading with God. God, please take it away. Come help me. Save me, oh God. God, turn and defeat your enemies and rescue me. And they usually end with, God, I trust you. God, you are my hope. God, you will deliver me. You are my strength in the night. If you've been at faith for the last three years, you've heard the word lament. Because we've been, it, been there in the Psalms, we've already been there with Psalm 3, 4, 5, 7, 9, 10, 12, 13, 14, and 17 are all songs of lament. There's a lot of them in these early Psalms. And a few years ago, we were in Habakkuk, and that is a prophetic book of lament. Christians who do not learn the language of lament and understand the purposes of lament and the practice of lament are left unequipped to deal with the difficult people and circumstances that we most surely will face in this life. Lament teaches us how to respond. We need, to, we need lament to teach us from God's inspired book so that we might be moved by the words of Scripture to respond to God in a certain way. This morning, I call Psalm 22 a gospel, the lament of the gospel. When in the Old Testament, a person came to a holy place like Moses coming to the burning bush, he took off his sandals because he realized he was on holy ground. We could all this morning take off our shoes because as we come to Psalm 22, we are on holy ground. This is a special psalm. They're all glorious. They are all given to us by God. They're all inspired by Scripture. But Psalm 22 Is a special psalm. One church father said it is, in some ways, the fifth gospel. And I call you, I call this psalm the lament of a gospel because it is a lament. Oh, you find King David in a devastating season of his life, and he cries out to God in agony. And yet this is a lament that Jesus Christ more fully lived out during his passion, the hours of his suffering in the cross. It says in Acts chapter 3 verse 20 that David, this is what what Peter says as an inspired word. He said, David being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath that his descendant would go to the throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When he, and then he quotes Psalm 16. And I think if we look at this passage, that David being a prophet, knowing that God was giving his descendant rule forever, he foresaw and spoke about an agony that was unlike any other agony. Now, this doesn't mean that David didn't experience a great season of rejection and dejection in which he writes the events of Psalm 22. We're not sure where this takes place in the life of David. He experienced this. But we can say that the Holy Spirit guided David to write these things down so that they would be fully fulfilled in another man who would come about a 1,000 years later. This does not mean that. So, this lament will help us with our pain and our sorrow as we learn to pray this prayer. But even more so, this lament, this psalm, is meant to be a balm to our afflictions as we look intently at the one who prayed this prayer for our salvation. This prayer sings the gospel and bring salvation to those who believe. There is a story in the book of Acts in which God sent Philip to an Ethiopian, and this pagan Ethiopian had been reading the scriptures of Isaiah, and he didn't understand fully what it means. And when he had it revealed to him what it meant, his eyes were opened, he was saved and baptized. And I pray that God would allow our eyes to be opened this morning to this psalm and be made different. So let's look at the psalm, it's 31 verses. And I want you to see I want us to see it divided into its two main sections and there are uneven sections. I'm going to call it this, I'm going to label it this way, this way. Verses 1 through 21 is the moan of lament. it, it there's there's a moaning, it's a groaning. It is it is a it is agony and howling. It is pain. That's verses one through 21. And then in verses 22 through 31, we have songs of praise. Quite a divide, quite a distinction, two different. I mean, how does a psalm go from moans and groans of lament and pain and agony to songs of praise? Well, let's begin by part one. Moans of lament. In this psalm, we see first an address to God. Like any true biblical lament, David turns away from self and he keeps looking to God. My God. My God. Verse 1. And then he continues on to looking to this God. Look at verse 3 through 5. He says, and he rehearses the faithfulness of God in the past. Yet you, God, are enthr- holy. You're enthroned in the praises of Israel. Israel praises you. In you, our fathers trusted, and you delivered them. You cried, they cried to you, and you rescued them. In you, they trusted and were not ashamed by trusting in you. A few verses later, in verse 9, he says personally about his own experience with God, Yet, you are the one who took me from my womb. You made me trust in my, on my mother's breast. Literally, he's, he's saying, when I was an infant, you were the midwife. And you brought me and placed me on my mother. And I trusted. And it was you who made me trust. And up until then, I can trace your hand in my life. You have been trustworthy. Trustworthy. But then he says says to God, be not far from me, trouble is near, there is none to help me. So David does turn to God, my God, my personal God. He says it two times here at the opening in this declaration of, oh God, I need you. And then then we have the complaint to God. Now when I say complaint to God, when we are... In agony, we are to complain to God. I don't mean, and I've said this before, we don't, I don't mean we complain about God. We don't grumble and complain about how bad is God. And I want to make it very clear that we never, ever should be angry at God or forgive God. We can't forgive God. He never does anything wrong. He only does that which is right. We don't always understand it. That doesn't mean That you haven't been here and haven't experienced what you have felt is anger towards God because things don't seem right and don't seem fair. And yet we bow before this God and so does David and he cries out to God with questions and with frustrations and with pains. And in this we see his anguish, an anguish like We've never seen in any of other David's anguishes. Look at verses 1 and 2. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? Why are you so far from the words of my groanings? I cry, but you do not answer. Day and night I find no relief. The message translation or paraphrase says it this way, God, God, my God, why did you dump me miles from nowhere? Doubled up with pain, I call to God all day long, no answer, nothing. I keep at it all night, tossing and turning, no answer. David, the king of Israel, has experienced great threat from his enemies, and God is silent to him. It's as though he feels God has let him down. And when he has gone to God repeatedly, God has not answered, and God seems to be so far away, it feels like God has abandoned David. God is not answering. God's not bringing comfort from the grief David's feeling, from the aloneness From the pain, from the difficulty, time has passed and there's still no relief. And it seems to get only worse because the God that he reflects upon has been faithful to his fathers in Israel and has been faithful to him since his womb is not showing up this time. Where are you, God? I wonder if you have experienced this in your life. Or are experiencing this in your life? Do you feel this way? Do you feel like God has abandoned you? He has forsaken you. You feel like He's just silent. He is not bringing the answer that you want or feel like you need. You feel the need that you feel is not being met. I wonder and I believe that I'm sure there are some that if you dig deep, you know that there has and you've experienced a loss of your childhood full of scars and pains from neglect or abuse, the betrayal of a spouse, the betrayal of a friend or parent, sibling, the loss of your spouse, and it doesn't seem to get better. The loss of your father. Marital division that has led to unhealed hurt. Confusion about your sexuality. And you haven't told anybody about it, but you are confused. And you cried to God and you're just overwhelmed. Maybe it's a self-loathing and pain that just won't go away. And your thoughts are dark. David was in great depression here. And he says, God, you're not near at all. Why did you leave me? You abandoned me. He goes on and he says, I'm a man despised. Look at verses 6 through 8. But I am a worm, not a man. That's strong language. I'm not a, I am a worm. I'm not a man. Scorned by mankind and despised by all people. All people who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. And this is what they do. They say to me, of me, he trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord he's trusting deliver him. Because God delights in him. Let's see if God's going to show up. And he's like, and he doesn't. Everyone's mocking me. I am a, I am worth nothing. He has enemies who are attacking him and insulting him with lies and taunts. They're mocking him with attacks that feel so close to home, saying, you trust in God. If he really loves you, let's see what he's going to do and take care of you. He's also, he describes his pain and agony as assaults by beasts. They're not literal beasts, but it's people that are just, and he, he has no other language than he uses languages of beasts. He says in verses 12 through 18, many bulls encompass me. It's this imagery of he's in this fields where there's a surrounding by bulls ready to attack him. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like ravening and roaring lions. So, now an imagery of a lion, they're surrounding him to devour him. Verse 14 I am poured out like water, I am spent. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's an idea of I am fearful and overwhelmed. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me down in the dust of death. I am left to die by my enemies. They want to destroy me. They are surrounding me. God isn't listening to me. Verse 16, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I count all my bones. That's the idea of I'm hungering that I can just, I'm so skinny from malnourished because I'm just so overwhelmed or I have nothing to sustain me that I can start feeling my bones. I can count them. They stare and gloat over me. So much so that as I am suffering, they just figure out what are they going to do with my belongings after I die. They divide my garments. My clothing, they cast lots. They're like wild beasts who brutalize David. They harass him, they surround him, they pierce him and play games with him. Now just think about this for a minute. David writes this lament. He's in such a bad place, he's depressed. He says, God, you've forsaken me. And then he describes with such devastation of how depressed he is, how despondent he is, how his enemies have treated him and have left him on the verge of death. And this is to, it says here, this is to Israel to sing a song to the choir master. This is for, for singing. It says he's delivered to death. For David, all hope is gone. His health is gone. I wonder where you are this morning. And as you think about grieving and of lament... I wonder if you think about enemies comes to your mind. All of us have them. You may not experience the difficulty of people who are literally your enemies trying to ruin your life. But you might or you might be now living remembering certain people that have made decisions and actions and said words that have impacted you to this day and it has been destructive. Surely all of us have Satan sin, and the circumstances of our lives and people that really feel like our enemies far too often. Tempting us, causing us to be discouraged and overwhelmed. I wonder where you are this morning. Maybe you feel like the Apostle Paul, it seems like David did, where he wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he said that, I want you to be aware of my afflictions I was utterly, says in verse 8, for we were utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Have you ever despaired of life itself? You just, I I think it would be better if I die. That's what David was. That's where Paul had been. He says, indeed, we have received a sentence of death. But Paul was going to say, but we... This was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on the God who raises the dead. I'll tell you that this David did not die in this story. God lifted David up out of the depression. God lifted David out of this lament. And he turns from groaning and moaning to rejoicing, singing, and praising. But as we read these verses, as New Testament Christians who not just read the Psalms, but we read the entire Bible, we have to see that this passage is far more than just about David teaching us and modeling us how how to grieve. We read these words and thoughts and when we see them, we have to see the New Testament. We need to see the Gospels of Matthew and Mark and of Luke and of John and of Hebrews. And I want you to turn with me for just a couple minutes to Matthew chapter 27. Would you do that? Would you go to Matthew chapter 27? And let's look at verse 32, and I want to read that through with you. I want you to see. And as I read this, oh, my God. Fix our hearts upon these truths as we reflect on Matthew 27 as it relates to Psalm 22. This is the story, the record of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. In verse 32 it says, And they went out, as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means a place of skull, they offered him a wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Now, you could cast your eyes on Psalm twenty-two nineteen. It says, they divided my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Verse 36 of Matthew 27. They sat down. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads Psalm 22 7, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads. And saying, You would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, Jesus. Save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So all the chief priests, the scribes and elders, mocked him, saying, He saved others, he can't save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. Now isn't that exactly what David says in Psalm 22, 8? And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him. In the same way. Verse 45. Now on the sixth hour there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying. Eli, Eli, Lema, Sabachthani. That is. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, 1. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to drink. But the other said, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. In Luke's gospel, it says, he said, into thy hands, I commit my spirit. Tradition says that Jesus on the cross prayed Psalm 22 through Psalm 31 while he was on the cross. As he's praying Psalm 22, he begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He ends at Psalm 31:5, where it says, Into my hands I commit my spirit. David felt like God had forsaken him. You and I, Might go through an agonizing period of your life, and you might be right now, you might feel like God has abandoned you or forsaken you. I want to tell you, friends, there was a moment on the cross that Jesus Christ not only felt like God had forsaken him, but in one real sense, very real sense, God the Father the Holy One of Israel, God did abandon Jesus. He turned away from Him. From the beginning of eternity, the Father and the Son existed in perfect unity and joy and communion. They always enjoyed each other. They delight in each other's presence and fellowship of the Trinity forever. Something hard for us to even fathom. Maybe something that you've never thought about. But for that moment on the cross, the agony reached a level far beyond any physical pain that Jesus the Messiah felt from physical crucifixion. I believe they were the things that Jesus was pondering as he was in the garden the night before as it said that he prayed and he ministered, He cried out to God and said, God, if this cup could pass away from me, please let it do that. But not my will, but your will be done. What was the cup that he was groaning for? And it says that he wept tears of blood. Oh, the agony that Jesus, as he pondered, not fearing just physical pain, but the experience of being on the cross. You see, the sins of the world were put on Jesus Christ. The Lamb of God was taking upon him the sin of all whom God would redeem. Or as Paul said it, for our sake, he he was made to be sin who knew no sin. In order that we might become the righteousness of God. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse. In the time that Jesus had our sins transferred upon Him, the Father could not, did turn away from Him. There is the wrath of the Almighty God came and judged Jesus on our behalf. And there is a real sense in which Jesus on the cross would rightfully be able to say, the only person, human being at that time, that truly was of God to be able to say, My God, why have you really forsaken me? And He was forsaken And he he took the bitter cup of God's wrath upon himself in our place. And God could not look upon him. Friends, someday God will forsake and abandon all unrepentant sinners. He will turn away his face and he will never return. He will show his almighty wrath to consume and eternally punish all those who have chosen their own way and do not receive his son's forgiven sacrifice. The Christ became the suffering servant. He was despised and rejected in a far greater way than David could ever describe his rejection. He was made to be a worm and not a man in order to make us who deserve every bit of that to become sons of our Father in heaven. If you're suffering this morning, and I know many of you are, the way to God who never forsakes you is to look to the one who was forsaken for you. He has not forsaken you, but he loves you. If you lament this morning because of the heartbreaking realities that, you're sh- that are being shoved at you and are holding you down, remember that there was a lament in Psalm 22 that was lived out by a man on the cross a thousand years after that lament was written. And he, you, he it changes everything for us. If you're sitting here and you cannot say, and I believe there's some of you in this room that cannot say, I know that Jesus was forsaken for me and I have already received him in my heart and I believe him and I want to follow him. He is my Lord and Savior. Oh, I invite you to him this morning as you hear the word of this lament. I invite you to His grace. He will receive you if you trust Him. And He will take upon, give you His gift of forgiveness that He purchased when on the cross He was forsaken. If you will believe on Him and receive Him, you will receive the free gift of eternal life, forgiveness of sins, entrance into His family, and a commitment that He will make to care for you, with a new life and a new mission, his mission. Please do that this morning. Do that and do not delay. Peter said to them when they were struck to heart, so what should we do? You need to repent. Turn from your sins and be baptized. Baptism doesn't save you. Baptism is the expression of saying, I believe and I'm now following. It's in Acts 2.38. Now on to the... End of this lament, this psalm of David. So what does David do? He, he complains to God. It's a picture of Jesus. He appeals to God in verses, back to Psalm 22, in verses 19 through 20, he appeals to God, and he says, but you, O Lord, do not be far off from me. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from my soul. From the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. And then a phrase, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Final words here, you have rescued me from the horns of wild oxen. We find here David crying out to God in some gasp. God, you've abandoned me, you've forsaken me, I am suffering, I'm laying as dust on the ground, ready to die, unless you help me, I'm gone, and something happens in this psalm. There's some turn, because at verse 22, it turns and shifts, there's a pivot, and it moves from absolute agony and lament, of which we have only can find its full expression on the cross of Calvary, Jesus Christ, to verses 22 to 31 do not have the same tone, so much so that some people said there's two different authors. It can't be by the same author. They must have just taken old documents, put them together. Not very well, because it just doesn't seem to fit, but that's not the case. This is clearly how God does it through death comes life, and out of death, out of the groaning, comes praise. In verse 22, it says, I will tell of your, nine, your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, And from verses 22 to the end of the the psalm, he is recommitting himself to God, David is. He claims the promises of God in verses 27 and 28. And he anticipates the glory from God. In verse 27, he says, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. There is coming a day and it has already been happening that when Jesus rose from the dead, he's ascended into heaven and all authority was given to him on heaven and earth. And he said, to all the, he said to the disciples, now go and make disciples of all the nations. Go bring the nations in, not just the Jews, the Gentiles, everyone of which we are so thankful because we are sitting in a Gentile church today as non-physical Jews praising Israel's Messiah and, and have hope of eternal life. And we are fellow heirs in the household of God rejoicing because this Messiah is fulfilling the promises of Israel as he suffers on the cross and now claims the promises that through this Messiah, through God's seed of Israel, all the nations would be blessed. And God is intending to bring in the nations from all over the earth Those whom he has purchased and he has claimed and he will bring them in. This is a psalm of triumph as it ends. This turn or pivot begins in verse 22 when he says, I will tell of your name to my brothers, David says. Well, you see, the Hebrew author knew that this wasn't just David writing he knew that this was speaking and prophesying of something greater. So that in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, it says, For it was fitting for whom and by whom all things exist, we know that's God, in bringing many sons to glory, little sons, heirs of the promise, and that means sons and daughters, men and women, to be heirs, It was fitting that he should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Psalm 22, 1 through 21 needed to be the experience of Jesus. So that Psalm 22 through 31 would be the experience of history and of you and me if we put our trust in him. It is as though... David returned from his depression and said to the rest of Israel, I've seen God's promises. He will deliver us. Let's praise the Lord. Let's be in awe of him. He is so great. And it is though that Jesus came out of the grave and declared to his brothers in Israel and to the disciples and the disciples to the rest of the world and to us. Of saying, I am making other brothers, and I declare to you the glory of God. He saves, He rescues, He's making a people and a kingdom for Himself. This Jesus groaned the words of Psalm 22, and He lived out the reality of its torture. This Jesus was raised from the dust and is no longer dead. The history books, both pagan and Christian, secular and religious, are undisputed. This man rose from the dead. A man named Jesus, crucified under Pontius Pilate, was seen living. This Jesus was not abandoned by the Father. He was not forsaken. He had to suffer in order to make us his family. He had to suffer in order to make us sons and daughters of God. He did this through his sufferings that are pictured in Psalm 22, 1 through 19. Dear Christian friend, you who are groaning and grieving and suffering in ways that I don't know or do know, Jesus is your Lord And he has gone before you and he will someday remove all your tears. He will not leave you or he will not forsake you. As you groan over the folly of other people's ways. As we together as a church groan over the folly of our nation and the world. And we must. As we see the mockery of Christian truth of Christ. Of mockery of the church. We know that we have a conquering king who suffered and died. And the pattern is death first, then life. Suffering in the night and joy comes in the morning. And that is what we are called to. May God make us a people that live in light and rejoice because of the realities of Psalm 22. May we groan and in our groaning cry out to God and learn how to lament like David did. But more than that, learn the God of David and the Savior of David and the descendant of David who would come and fulfill these words in a much fuller way. You see... All the prosperity of the earth will worship him, as the psalmist says here. They shall come and proclaim the righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Amen. Father, as we come to grips with these words, and once again, maybe for the first time or again renewed the gospel I pray that we would cherish the gospel we would sing the gospel we would believe the gospel oh we're going to sing the power of the cross God I pray that this morning as we do that we would rejoice in what you have done for us in Calvary at the cross now, God God make your people here the church so transformed by the gospel of your sufferings and your life and your death and your resurrection. Father, I do plead with you that those that are here this morning and are not yet saved, they would be haunted by Psalm 22. I pray that those that are here that are not saved, they would be haunted by the reality that they will be forsaken by you forever, of which will mean absolute agony forever, unless they repent and believe in you. So God, I pray they would do that. That the word of the cross would be power to them and salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.